came to realize that what started out as a natural disaster became a man-made disaster. We cannot control the natural disaster, but what we can do is control our response. Have you ever wondered whether disasters are actually natural? If so, you're in the right place. Hello and welcome. My name is Jason von Medding. I'm Xenia Chmutina. And I'm Darian Alexander-Williams. This is Disasters Deconstructed, a podcast where we examine why disasters really happen. Today's episode is part of season four. Thank you for tuning in. Hi, Darian. Hi, Jason. Hey. Hey. How's it going? Yeah, good. Like, listen, I've got a question for you both today, okay. right? Um, <laughs> you're ready. Uh-oh. <laughs> oh, no, oh, no. So, like, we've been talking about school a lot, right? We've been talking about education a lot. Mm-hmm. And, of course, all three of us mm-hmm. are in education. We're teaching. So, tell me, um, did you actually like school? Like, were you good at school? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I feel like I was really conscientious until I was around 11 or 12. Like, I really, mm. um, you know, performed really well on all, all of my courses and tests and whatever. And then I got to like, in, in, I was in school in Dublin, in Ireland. So you go to, to like primary school and secondary school. You don't really have middle school and high school the same way, but it's kind of merged. Mm. So when I went to, secondary school i had like really high set really a really high bar and then from there i just like cruised and didn't take it seriously and was kind of like more interested in (laughs) sports and social side um and that probably continued like up until my phd (laughs) i don't know But I, I still managed to kind of find a pathway. But no, it's it's interesting because I, I, my critique is more like around the philosophies of teaching and learning that really didn't work for me, and um, like cramming for for standardized tests and like exams where you were you kind of regurgitated information and never really learned it. Mm. I just hated the whole. <laughs> like the philosophy of that mm-hmm. and I, I guess it was not until i i was able to do independent study like that's that's when i really appreciated um at a deeper level like some of the things that are wrong with the education system what about you darren yeah i mean i wasn't sporty like jason um i was a big nerd and really bought into uh conventional metrics of academic success uh and thought that was my main way of performing like being a a a good member of society until like age uh 15 when i had a really um awful teacher who kind of created this really awful classroom environment and then i made a video about it that went viral um <laughs> and i talked to both of you a little bit about this um after that moment though i thought like all right i'm above this i have internet fame um <laughs> school does not serve me uh but like that kind of that really did uh like actually kind of break me in mm. a 
uh, in a generative way mm. where I realized that uh, it took me that long to sort of realize that uh, authority is kind of ridiculous in a lot mm. of mm. American settings. Um, so I liked school. I had a good time. <laughs> but that's really interesting, right? Because like I, I, I've been all right, like not great, you know, um, terrible in some subjects, excellent in others. And I think all of us now teaching, I think we sort of almost expect students to be good, right? And but when our own experiences were not perhaps that. And so this is why I'm really excited about today's episode. We haven't really talked about education in a school setting before, mm-hmm. and I think our, our audiences will really enjoy what Darren has prepared for us today. Yeah, most definitely. Um, I'm really glad that I got to share some space with Luis Gallegos, um, who's an assistant principal at a high school in Los Angeles. I know Luis has kind of has taught both on the East and West Coast of the United States, has a lot of interesting insights and sort of a unique position in terms of his identity and his politics with what schooling is looking like through various forms of disaster and what the pandemic kind of entails for public school even after you know we're quote unquote like done (laughs) with the Mm. pandemic whenever that will be so i think it'll be a good chat so Throughout the season, we're trying to connect with voices outside of disaster studies and emergency management, carrying out meaningful and needed disaster work, folks who have unique insights to share. And my guest today to help us with that is Luis Gallegos. Luis Gallegos is assistant principal at Alliance Ochi, a high school in Los Angeles. Luis is a public school educator and has served in schools throughout New England and Los Angeles, California. As a queer Latinx school leader, He works from a social justice lens and with the goals of empowering students to dismantle systems of oppression. Welcome, Luis. Hi, Darian. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for for being here. Um, And let's like jump right into it. So your your bio uh, kind of states very clearly and prominently a variety of identities as they relate to your work. Um, So I want to ask, can you tell us like how all of this sort of comes together for you, particularly as you, uh, as you say, empower students to dismantle systems of oppression. Yeah, I definitely can. Um, I'm just really excited to be here and, and share, you know, my experiences with you and, and share what my students in South Los Angeles have been experiencing during uh, COVID-19. So yeah, let's just jump right in. Um, when I think of my work, I always wrap my vision and actions and who I am and my values. Uh, so when I think about who I am, I'm the son of Salvadoran immigrants uh, that came to the US, uh, Los Angeles in particular, uh, back in the 80s. Um, I think about the fact that although my parents speak Spanish, I was taught m- mostly English growing up and then Prop 227 in California, um, which uh, eliminated bilingual education and instituted English only education, like robbed me of my um, opportunities to be completely fluent in Spanish when I was young. Uh, I think about the fact that I'm queer and I'm, uh, you know, proud and out about that, both as a, you know, individual, but also in the classroom and in the schools that I've worked in. Um, I think about my values. Uh, I believe that community voices matter. Like, I don't believe I get the work done. I think that we as a community get it done. Uh, 
to that also to that end, I also believe uh, that relationships matter. Um, whenever I think about relationships in schools, I always think about um, educator Rita Pearson, um, who passed away in 2013. But she has this really famous TED talk where she talks about um, called Every Kid Needs a Champion. And she talks about like learning and relationships. And I, I'm going to paraphrase her here and, and say that she says, kids don't learn from people they don't like. Um, when I was in the classroom, that is something that I held very near and dear to my heart. And as a school leader, that also extends into the work that I do. Like I, uh, we can't get any work done unless we're connected to one another and we have those relationship bonds. Um, and if we don't, we got to make sure that they, that they are built and strengthened over time. And then the final value I think about a lot is around justice and anti-racism. When you think about it, schools are really a microcosm of our world. Um, they reflect the best parts of our society and also the worst parts of our society. Um, you know, like I think about being in the classroom, you're able to learn about who you are, learn about the experience of others through, you know, the books, um, through um, history, uh, you know, through so many other contents um, and, and really understand how the world works. And at the same time, you can be in a school that, you know, has systems of oppression in place. Maybe they Maybe the school has really strict um, uniform policies in place. Maybe the school has uh, really strict discipline policies where, like, you know, a student can get detention or suspension or expelled pretty easily, right? Um, and, and sort of replicating or reinforcing, rather, the school-to-prison pipeline. Um, so when I think about, uh, you know, something that you had quoted me as saying before is, like, you know, a school is a place to empower students to dismantle systems of oppression, I, I really do believe that schools offer kids the best opportunity to not just learn about these systems that are oppressing them in the school and outside of it, but also understanding how their voices can help them challenge those systems and bring them down. Um, I have a couple of pretty good examples from my own school context here at, at Ochi that I can share, but, but in a nutshell, that's, that's what I mean. Wow. Um, and I really appreciate that reflection, um, related to sort of these core principles, values, guiding thoughts, directives. Uh, so what did your role as assistant principal look like sort of prior to COVID-19? Um, and how has that shifted, especially in relation to all of these things that you share now? Yeah. Uh, so my role, generally speaking, as an assistant principal, I'm one of three assistant principals at my school, and I oversee culture, Spanish, uh, English language learners, social studies, and family engagements. Um, and prior to COVID-19, I, I think the, the biggest visible difference is just having more direct contact with students in my community than I do now. Um, so I could speak with kids, uh, about their days, you know, when I saw them on campus, I could welcome them into my office. I could reach out to them directly when I knew something was wrong. Uh, as an example of this, I'm thinking of a student and I'm going to call her just the letter M, um, just for anonymity's sake. Mm -hmm. Uh, and M was a senior last year. Uh, she was also Salvadoran, uh, first generation here in the U S uh, former EL students, uh, English learner student that is. And I actually met her early on in the school year during one of uh, her AP classes that I was observing. 
uh, in that particular lesson, she was struggling because the lesson was using a lot of tier three vocab, or um, for those of you not knowing what that is, tier three vocab is just like content specific vocabulary. And um, the teacher at that time who I was coaching was, was still working on accommodating their lessons for language learners. And so as I came in to observe that class, um, I sat next to her, um, you know, and she, you know, shared with me that the struggles that day with the vocabulary, but as I kept coming in every week, she gradually opened up more and more um, and, and ended up visiting my office pretty often that year. Um, when her grandmother uh, passed away around February of uh, 2019, you know, she was obviously very heartbroken and obviously that impacts any person's ability to stay focused in, you know, whatever their normal routine is. And so in M's case, this was school. So she, you know, struggled a lot more with school at that point. Um, and, you know, a key difference between now during the COVID shutdown and then was that back then, you know, because I was having those, you know, those interactions with her on a, on a pretty weekly basis, at that point, her relationship was strong enough that, you know, as she shared with me what she was going through, I shared that at that time, I was also struggling with a loss in my life um, and shared some of that struggle. Um, and when COVID shut down our schools in LA in March, right, like interactions like the ones I just described became increasingly difficult, if non-existent because of the limitations in virtual learning. Because um, I, when I think about the shift here, I think a lot about like how virtual learning requires a strong sense of digital literacy of how to navigate a computer, a web browser, you know, the technical functions that come with the computer, right? Um, and how very few students um, in the communities that I work in, I work in a predominantly um, lower income, uh, you know, a community of color, um, a lot of that literacy wasn't there. And so tech has made it actually harder to stay connected. Um, and so with someone like M, I, I wasn't able to see her as often as I could. Um, we, we were able to keep in touch via email um, because as a senior, she kind of already had that digital literacy um, set up. Um, but the, the, that would be the biggest shift is that I wasn't able to have those connections with, with uh, members of my community like I used to. Like Los Angeles is very famously at the intersection of many different kinds of hazards. Like we're always hearing about things on fire uh, with wildfires and we're always, uh, maybe not always, but periodically hearing about earthquakes. And so I, I want to ask like how your role as assistant principal and sort of your, your place in your school community is different for these other kinds of hazards than it is for COVID-19, or maybe it's not, maybe it's the same. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it is the same in the sense that school really is a place where, you know, kids can come in and ideally get the, not just the academic support, which is important, but like that, that social emotional support that they may be searching for um, that they need when they're navigating big 
uh, crises like COVID-19 or uh, the wildfires. Um, if, you know, and I, I'm just thinking about like, if I can focus on COVID-19 for a second, um, I'm thinking about like how these crises like really compound existing inequities that are already affecting our communities. So like I mentioned before in, in South LA, um, it's predominantly low income. Uh, you know, the, um, most of my students, about 94% of my students re receive free or reduced lunch. Um, and so that means that they, you know, that their families, uh, don't necessarily, uh, you know, have access to a lot of money and financial security. Um, and so when COVID-19 hit in LA, you saw like thousands of people lose their jobs because they couldn't continue working with the restrictions in place. Mm -hmm. Uh, and in my particular community, I saw a lot of students end up taking additional responsibilities. So I think of like one kid in particular, I'm just going to call him A. And A is a senior. Um, and, and he, uh, you know, ended up picking up a job in construction this year. Uh, and he had to do that because his family was facing financial hardship. Um, and so what that initially looked like was he was, uh, he had spotty attendance. He was leaving class early. No one was really sure what was happening. And when I ended up meeting with him and his father to talk about this, um, virtually, you know, they explained that, uh, he needed to work because mom lost her job and suddenly they were a single income household and he was the only other person in the house who could work. And so, you know, when, while situations like this existed before COVID, you know, more and more kids are finding themselves taking on extra responsibilities uh, like this. And with the wildfires, right, uh, in, in LA County, really the biggest impact there was the breathing quality um, and, and, you know, like visibly seeing your, the skies being like dark and red and, and filled with soup, right? Um, if we were in school, a kid like a, um, uh, he would have at least had access to basic needs, like, you know, lunch on a daily basis, right? Um, our school is fortunate enough to have, um, air conditioned classrooms. Um, and so he would have had like ventilated classrooms and not have to be, ex be at work where he was during the week, um, and being exposed to that suit and the unhealthy air quality, right, on a daily basis. Um, and other students, accordingly, they didn't have access to, you know, those basic needs that we could provide them at our school. And so they've had to navigate, like, during that time period with the wildfire, that, that bad air quality um, with the varying degrees of comfort and safety in their own homes. Hmm. And I want to follow this thread. Um because you know you you already mentioned how you see how these hazards sort of compound existing um inequities and justices for the community that you're part of and so what impacts from uh this disaster from covid-19 um do you feel like most of us are sort of missing with the the people in your school and connected to your school like how are you witnessing covid-19 sort of impact the students, the families, the faculty, and the staff, um, and even just sort of yourself as an educator there? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think it's a really great question um, because when I think about this, my mind first goes to our students, right? And so I mentioned um, M before, right? Uh, and I mentioned A just now in, in their specific circumstances, right? Um, but they're just like examples of 
of what most of my kids are experiencing right now. And we still have an issue. We have a big issue right now in public education where schools and school districts are arguing about whether or not kids need to earn their grades. Like, should we fail kids right now during this um, crisis? And, and the fact that that's even a conversation, um, like I, I, you know, how am I going to fail A, who's a senior, if he had to pick up a job to support his family during a global pandemic? Mm. Like, you know, by failing him in his classes, right? Like we're, and he's a senior, we're, we're potentially limiting the opportunities he's going to have in his life. Right. Like there's a, 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 there's an issue here where like, you know, if he receives F's, he could become a high school, um, you know, he could drop out of high school, excuse me. And, and that would negatively impact the, the kind of um, life outcomes he could have. Right. And it's not his fault. It's not like he wanted to work to, you know, um, on, on his own accord, but rather he's doing it because it's the right thing to do for his family. And I think a big part of what's missing, um, for folks who are not in education right now is that there's a base, there's an expectation here that kids are expected to learn and be graded as if no crisis is happening. Hmm. And that's really inequitable. And I think, you know, downright racist when we think about where that, who is going to be impacted uh, the most by that. Um, my kids in South LA are struggling with mental health issues. Um, the, the crisis in you know, is, is amplifying these inequities, as I mentioned before, and impacting their families. Uh, they have a low tech literacy. They have added responsibilities of home of taking care of siblings. Um, I can tell you for a fact that kids across all grades in my school have had direct, meaning that they themselves have tested positive for COVID or have been closely impacted by a family member being uh, diagnosed with COVID. Um, and the expectation is that, that we should grade them as if things are, 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 are okay. Um, and it's not just a policy question, right? Like these are conversations happening within schools. Like these are conversations that I've had with uh, staff members um, and, and trying to find, you know, what is the most equitable policy to put in place to, to support our kids in this crisis has been a, a real challenge. Um, and when I hear parents on the news, when I hear politicians on the news tell us, you know, we need to open up our school and we need to, you know, keep our kids in school and, and keep going uh, like things are normal. It is, it is really disheartening to hear that because it's not taking into account that our kids are not experiencing school like they normally would they're alone in their rooms right as they learn they're um or trying to learn you know they're navigating all of these challenges and and i think that brings me to my my next point about you know our faculty and our staff um you know this expectation that schools need to be open up again um as if things are normal ignores the fact that our teachers are working under the most challenging conditions they have ever been under hmm. like our teachers are parents uh who have kids in school our teachers are caregivers um you know our teachers uh live in multi-generational homes our teachers have had direct connection to covid and have no family members who've been who, who've tested positive for that and our teachers right now are feeling like 
they're failing because they're not able to do the work like they used to. Our teachers are disheartened and that's a big challenge we have at our school. And I, I don't blame them um, at all uh, because, you know, the work feels different. It doesn't, it's hard to teach when you're not seeing your kids in front of you, hmm. right? When you speak into a, a, a virtual classroom and you ask your, um, your check for understanding question and only three students respond in the chat out of 30. Hmm. You know, like it, it becomes very disheartening to have to, to work under those conditions and to hear this constant um, barrage of, uh, of, of people outside of education telling us to continue doing our jobs like normal um, is extremely demoralizing. Uh, and so it's it's very challenging to to be in education right now because our our community, our stakeholders in our communities, we're all dealing with this. Um, heavy burden of having to continue on as if things are normal when the reality just doesn't fit that. Uh, and if I speak on behalf of myself and, and how this has impacted me personally, uh, I, I, you know, have a fear of exposing my family to COVID. Because uh, in some states, if I was teaching in a, if I was working, excuse me, and leading a school in a different state, like let me say Massachusetts, for instance, because that's where I used to be. Um, in Massachusetts, a lot of schools are open. Hmm. A lot of schools are expecting their staff to come. And I have friends uh, and, uh, you know, colleagues and a partner who, who teach in Massachusetts who tell me routinely like, oh, I just received another email saying another community member has tested positive and I may have been exposed. Like, I'm grateful that I'm not I'm not in, I'm not having that specific experience, but I know that once we open up again in California, like that is a fear I have because I live in a multi-generational home right now and I don't want to expose my family to, you know, to a, 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 an illness that could potentially harm them. Uh, and then when I think about that, I think about the hard decisions that a lot of educators and school leaders have had to make. Well, if I have to return to campus and risk exposing my family, is my job worth that? You know, and, and that's something that I, I think a lot about. Um, and when I think about my students as well, like I don't want my students to come to campus if they're going to be exposed mm-hmm. to, to, to COVID-19 um, because the school district isn't going to pay for their health insurance, uh, you know, costs, right? Or their healthcare costs, excuse me. Um, the state isn't paying for it, right? Um, and so there's there's a lot here that I think people outside of education are missing um, when it comes, especially when it comes to COVID. Um, I think bottom line is this expectation that we soldier on and, and continue as if things are normal is really, um, I think, challenging for everyone in a school right now. And what we need the most from people, I think, is, is empathy and understanding. And our students in particular need that the most because we can't just expect them to to learn as usual, we have to like meet their needs too. So let's like let's stick with this this idea of normal and normalcy. Um, uh, it, do you think? Um, 
Well, I, this is a tongue a tongue in cheek question. I, I, maybe it's not even sincere to ask. Like, do you think we'll ever go back to normal? Um, the real question is, um, like, do you see any long term changes to just how education or how schooling specifically is done in the United States after the pandemic is like quote unquote over or at least um, uh, controlled and mitigated? Like, are there are there some ways that we've changed that you feel are probably here to stay? Um, and sort of what, what are you learning right now or what's been learned? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I mean, if we just define normal as simply as like being back in a physical school building, I, I hope that that is what we return to um, as soon as it's safe um, and for our students and our communities. Um, but some of the long-term changes that I'm already seeing happening both in my school and with my colleagues across the country and friends across the country or in schools um, is really what we're talking about in education. I've seen a huge shift in how schools are beginning to or strengthening their vision of an anti-racist education in our in our schools right now. Like uh, that is by far the biggest thing, biggest difference I've seen. I've never seen so many educators, um, uh, whether it's through social media or through my own networks and school leaders, really openly talk about how their schools need to be um, needs to, needs to embody, excuse me, an anti-racist educational experience for all of our students. Um, and I'm going to use my school as an example, uh, here because I think that'll help make this, uh, more concrete. But in, um, the summer, our school received a petition from alumni. And in this petition, alumni, um, over the last few years got together and outlined a series of, um, both district-wide and school-wide policies that were reinforcing systemic racism and um, racist outcomes for uh, our students. And when we received this, um, you know, documents uh, and, and petition, and there was this, uh, you know, like, social media campaign that, that, that followed these student organizers that did this, um, we received it in a moment where our leadership and our teachers were talking a lot about what does it mean to, to teach and lead in a racist society? And when our kids told us, hey, uh, or excuse me, our alumni told us, hey, like, actually, you all have been, you have all been perpetuating um, racist systems of oppression in a variety of ways. And here's a clear, here's a clear list of what those are. Um, you know, we stopped and reflected. Um, and I'm really grateful to my my school leader, um, uh, Dia Tramble. She's our principal. She's been our, our principal um, at our school uh, for around 10 years or so and, and has had a long career in, in public education in the Los Angeles area. Um, but we were able, like under her, to really step back and reflect on um, what it is that we need to do differently. And we were called out on our uniform policy. We were called out on our... Um, uh, on the district's uh, vision of like standardized testing and the number of standardized tests we have. Um, we were called out on our discipline policies. Um, uh, and I want to say, I want to be clear that like, I don't call it and we don't currently call it discipline policies, but that's what our, how our students viewed it um, and how connected those policies were to, um, you know, uh, policing kids of color in school and, and how we needed to move away from that and move more towards restorative practices, um, restorative justice practices, uh, excuse me. 
And we really let ourselves be read. Um, and I, I feel like that's a term in, in our in our queer community, right? Like when someone reads you to filth, right? Um, we really were read. And um, what was uncomfortable about that was having to read that and like, okay, where it is clearly true if our alumni are telling us it's true, hmm. you know? And so now it's up to us to determine what are we going to do about it. And as a result, we ended up having a, and we are still, ha- we actually have a meeting next week, but we are continuing, we've been continuing to meet with the alumni. Um, and we brought in current students as well to represent current student needs. We brought in teachers as well to represent teacher needs, um, to address everything that's been in, in the petition. And we've been like working towards addressing each of those components, like a, a one quick thing that we like were, were able to like completely um, change was, um, you know, uh, we had historically not in school year. Well, historically, excuse me, we've had uh, dog searches uh, where like dogs could come in and like, uh, you know, check for uh, drugs. And that was a practice that was pretty common throughout Los Angeles Unified School District and other charter schools. Um, and our alumni pointed out how racist that practice was, hmm. how that practice doesn't happen in suburban schools in Los Angeles, and that we needed to change it. And as a part of our commitment to that petition, you know, we vowed to not use that practice anymore moving forward. We also very clearly made, made it clear that we don't have any contracts with, um, you know, the LAPD to to like formally have like a school resource officer or anything like that in our campus um, or informally. And so we made those commitments pretty, pretty early on. And I've been working with our, our, our alumni community and our school community to continue moving towards a vision of anti-racist education. And I'm seeing that happen with a lot of my, my colleagues across the country and across the city. Um, my hope is that like during this time, we continue to reflect on our practices. Um, we continue to see how, systems of, of inequity that existed prior to COVID are even more visible now do impact student outcomes. And we consider that moving forward, mm-hmm. right? Like I, I, I feel like a big trend in education for a number of years has been, well, it's not about poverty. It's not about systemic racism, but it's about grit and teaching mm-hmm. kids to like pull themselves off from their bootstraps, right? And I and I feel like the sh- there's been a big shift in that, obviously, um, you know, really problematic um, way of viewing the world and, and looking at, well, systems do impact student outcomes. And right now that's a big conversation. COVID is limiting student outcomes. It doesn't matter how hard we tell the kids to work. It doesn't matter, um, you know, what quote unquote, like, values we want to instill in kids, and I'm just speaking broadly as, 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 as educators, because uh, that's a conversation that does happen. Um, the fact is, if I have, if I'm a senior, and I have to choose between, you know, supporting my family's income, and going to school at the same time, right, like, and I have an opportunity to support my family, I'm going to do that. But that's obviously going to hurt my ability to do well in school, right? And it's not for lack of trying, but it's a it's a systemic issue there. And my hope is that we don't return to a normal where where the conversation is. It's all about the kid pulling themselves up. It's all about the kid doing the work. It's all about teachers working really hard. No, it's it's not about that. But rather, it's like we live in a society that limits opportunities. 
for many people, specifically for communities of color. And so if that is the case, how do we create a school and lead a school where kids can see, yeah, like there's systemic racism. What can you do and what can we do as a community about it to like continue empowering ourselves and and breaking down those systems of oppression? So I'm hoping that that's where the the movement goes. Um, and And I hope we don't move backwards into a sense of like, well, the pandemic's over. We're all vaccinated. Um, kids can get failed again. Like, I, I hope we don't fall back into that, those patterns. Yeah, I, this is a little bit off the cuff, but I, I want to kind of drill a little bit deeper because you've mentioned it a couple of times already. Like one, uh, so you've talked about, you've made reference to the, uh, the school to prison pipeline um, and the different ways that um, school can be a space where students are uh, exposed to systemic injustice, systemic violence, systemic inequities. Um, and then you, I feel like you you sort of substantiated that a, a little bit with um, this idea of having dogs sniff students at their schools for um, drugs or drug paraphernalia. And I'm wondering, what does that look like? Uh, like, what what do things like the, the school to prison pipeline sort of look like when everyone's on Zoom or like in some sort of video education space? Like, are they um, are they like suddenly liberated from policing and surveillance and sort of like some of the carceral, carceral ways some schools can be, um, maybe not necessarily your school, um, I've never been your school, but, <laughs> um, yeah, like are, are those things sort of like evaporated and gone or do they shift and change? Like how are, how are students or how do you imagine sort of students, interactions with these systems kind of going down in the digital space? The interactions, I think, online are, there's, students are still dealing with um, adults who will inadvertently, I think, most of the time, but sometimes intentionally, police their behavior. Mm-hmm. And so I, and then expect that, like, if a student is acting out in some way, that that student receive um uh, a consequence that um you know mirrors the the um the action rather than like trying to provide a a, an approach that allows the kid to learn from their mistake and, and move forward so as an example of this um you know would be around language and you know i work at a high school and high school students in case you don't know any high school students high school students do swear um, uh, high school students also have uh, a relationship with um, slurs that they're still like de- under- developing their understanding of how like specific words impact other people. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking about you know a couple of cases where students have used slurs for gay people or queer people towards a teacher who is um, out, who's an out educator, um, where students have used um, variations of slurs 
Uh, so for instance, like uh, using the N word um, in a classroom with a black teacher and then the expectation being one of two things. Like the expectation is like this kid said something that was horrible. Like, therefore they are that they for, therefore they're homophobic. Therefore they're racist. Um, so they should be suspended. Hmm. So like a, a, a school to prison pipeline practice is suspension. So when we suspend kids, we take them out of school and research has shown that when you do that, you actually, um, disconnect or, or sever that positive relationship between the kid and school. And so the more and more you do that, the more that kid tries to fill in that relationship with something else. And in, in a lot of research that that kid ends up becoming more and more, um, court involved, uh, and, um, can be put on a pathway that eventually leads to incarceration. Uh, that's what a lot of the research shows. And it starts with like practices like suspension and detention. And so in the virtual space, when you're a teacher or a staff member and you hear a student use a slur, like the ones I mentioned, right? Like, I think what I've noticed is that, and this is human, I think, I do want to be clear about this. I think this is a human reaction. If someone were to direct a slur at you, like you are going to feel hurt by it and you are going to want that person to, to be taught a lesson, right? But oftentimes people will turn to, um, a negative consequence like suspension. So like if I suspended that kid who, who said a homophobic slur, like the thinking there from a, from a certain perspective is that like, oh, they won't use it again. But no, that's actually not what's not, not what's going to happen. That kid will just think like, oh, you know, these people are too sensitive. I don't see what's wrong with me using that word. Um, I'm going to keep doing it hmm. versus um, a non school to prison pipeline practice would be a restorative approach. And so restorative approaches are, centered around relationship building and allowing kids the the space to learn from their mistakes. And so for a kid who used a slur um, with a homophobic slur, for instance, with a, with a teacher and in this particular case that I'm thinking of, um, you know, we sat the teacher and that student down with the Dean and they had a conversation um, and the students, the, the teacher was able to explain how they felt when they heard that word. And then the, the kid was able to explain what they were feeling in that moment. And that particular student owned up to it. Like, yeah, what I said wasn't okay. And I don't think that I should have used that language. I was just really frustrated. Then that teacher was able to like understand, well, this kid was frustrated because of um, not being able to access the content at that time. They were having trouble with the work. And that's how their frustration manifested. It's not that this kid is homophobic but rather like this kid was dealing with something else. Hmm. And sure enough, like not that this happens every single time necessarily, it's usually built over time. But in this particular case, we haven't had an issue with that kid using language like that um, in that particular classroom or in other classrooms. Hmm. Like I would argue that like, that's the, that's a harder approach that requires more time that requires more effort on everyone's behalf. But that kid learns a lesson versus like some schools would have suspended that kid. Mm -hmm. um, the other example of where this takes even longer is this example of, uh, of the student who used the N word um, in a class uh, with a black teacher. And when we had this same 
process that I outlined of like sitting down with the, the, you know, the student and, 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 you know, trying to get the student to understand the impact of their words, this particular student actually um, doesn't see anything wrong with using that word. Um, uh, and was very adamant that, you know, we were policing his language that, uh, that hit that word was okay. And that, um, we're too sensitive. Um, and so that started off a series of like other touch points, but we have to like talk to that kid and, and incorporate other ways for that kid to understand the impact of his language. Um, but the school to prison pipeline approach would have been like at a no excuses, uh, you know, traditional school or charter could have been to suspend that kid. Mm-hmm. What you did was wrong. You're suspended, but the kid doesn't learn a lesson. Right. And so, um, we've had to deal with a lot of navigating that, you know, that, 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 that kind of interaction between teachers and students and continuously trying to make sure that kids have the opportunity to learn from their mistakes and move forward. And, and for teachers to also be heard versus going down the pathway of like, okay, kid, you said this word, we're going to suspend you. Um, and, and sort of like use that approach, which doesn't, which doesn't yield results according to a lot of the academic research out there. Yeah. And I, I appreciate you, um, taking me through this, this, this journey of, um, of comparisons of, of different ways to, um, build, maintain a community and to educate people and to support each other through something. And I, I, I want to ask like maybe a more generative question than, than my prior question about the school to prison pipeline um, or, or how schools might serve, you know, the police state. Um, because again, like LA in particular experiences so many different kinds of hazard events. And so where, where do you see schools in like larger community efforts to sort of mitigate uh, hazards or, or mitigate the risk of a disaster happening? for a whole neighborhood or for a whole city um, or for families in particular? Yeah, I see schools being ideally being a place of uh, support, like post disaster or during disaster. So like I'm thinking right now, like LAUSD and um, Alliance, which is the charter I work for, uh, and um, uh, the other public charters that are out there in LA, like a lot of them, what they ended up doing was, um, you know, we close our schools but kids can still come in and pick up lunch and breakfast uh, because that's a, a very important need for a lot of our communities. And that's something that, you know, needed to be done. It was supporting the citywide efforts around um, supporting, you know, folks during COVID, right? Because a big concern is around food security, right? If like families are struggling with money because they're not able to work due to the restrictions, how are they going to feed their kids? And so in our particular case in Los Angeles, uh, you know, we opened up, uh, the campuses with small amounts of, uh, staff members and created like nutrition hubs where kids can come and grab and go uh, a breakfast and a lunch. Um, and I know that, uh, kids all across the, the city, uh, from grades K through 12 have been utilizing that. And so I think that's like an example of where schools can support during, um, a disaster or following a disaster. Um, when I think about like potentially, you know, you know, when I think about like earthquakes and the, you know, the worst case scenario in, in California is like the big one um, and and that causing like monumental damage that it destroys people's homes. Right. Like, you know, with schools being built the way they are, they are built to withstand, um, you know, with 
really, really extreme uh, earthquakes, those would most likely be turned into, you know, community hubs where folks can come in and pick up supplies and or have a have a place to stay. I think it just depends on the specific school, um, like the physical space of the school itself and um, what resources are allocated. But that's the role I do see schools playing. And then when it comes to like education, I think it's the moral um, responsibility of schools to adjust our education uh, our educational output, I guess, or, or, or resources to meet the needs of folks now. And so going back to my previous uh, talking points about grading, um, you know, right now kids don't have access to school the way they used to. There's no equitable tech access, really. Um, you know, even if kids have internet access, internet uses or internet um, can be spotty depending on the area that you're in. Um, you know, schools really do have to um, you know, adjust and accommodate how they provide an education and how they grade as well so that kids can still feel successful, so that kids can still learn, kids can still have all the opportunities that they need in life and not, you know, penalize them for, um, you know, a disaster that is impacting their ability to learn. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's where I see the, the roles of schools when it comes to disasters. This show is um, listened to by a lot of uh, people who work in disaster studies or emergency management. Our um, government emergency management office is sort of what do these people, myself included, um, sort of specifically need to know about schools and educators or how to engage, how to meaningfully engage um, your work or how to contribute to your work or even just sort of form, you know, sort of reciprocal relationships. Yeah, I think the the best thing to do um, for researchers is to, yeah, like go directly to the schools, like go to, and, and try to incorporate in the research, right? Like teacher voices, student voices, school leader voices. Like I, I think I don't see this happen too often in the case studies that I read because um, I'm in a grad program myself. Uh, right now for educational leadership. Um, but the, the, the best research I've read has been when researchers go into the schools and, and talk directly to the community stakeholders and ask them about their experiences and then tie that into larger systemic, um, larger systemic issues. Um, I'm really curious about the, the research that will come out for, you know, this current disaster. Um, I'm curious about like what virtual learning yields um how what the best practices were overall in schools across the country versus like the ones that didn't yield as many um you know outcomes uh so i I think that that would be a a good starting point is to reach out directly to educators and students i appreciate that and you answered my my next question about sort of what are some outstanding questions that um that sort of need to be answered that, that are relevant to this disaster or or other kinds of disasters that that schools um, routinely deal with around the world. So maybe just looking, looking towards the future, uh, like how do you feel about the future of K through 12 education in the United States? And what's, (laughs) what, what do you think is in store for us? I feel really inspired. 
I think about the alumni petition that was presented to us. Uh, these are kids, uh, these are, excuse me, uh, young student leaders who are in college, um, graduated from our high school, who, who reflected on their experiences and said something needs to be done about this. And then, and then took direct action and really, you know, put us on blast on social media and, and many other ways to get our attention. Um, and then seeing the response that my school had, every teacher, every staff member, every school leader in that building was like, we need to listen and we need to do differently by our kids. And it's not just at our school where that's happened, right? I see educators across the country and school leaders across the country also like um, beginning to initiate conversations around anti-racism and education or strengthening their existing visions already. And I've never seen that before. Um, you know, I, I've worked in education as a teacher since 2012. I've been in education since um, I, back when I was in college in, in 2006 as a tutor. And in all of the years that I've, I've, I've been in education, right now is a very exciting time because people are students, families, um, and and uh, school staff are talking a lot about reimagining education so that we can change the systemic racism and challenge it and eliminate it um, uh, eventually um, that, that we all experience. Um, and I've never seen that kind of movement happen before. Uh, so it's very exciting, a very exciting time. I'm very, very blessed to be working with the educators that I work with at my school at, at Ochi. Um, they're some of the hardest working teachers that I've ever met in my life. Um, they're super open to feedback, super open to, you know, the student voice and incorporating that. Same with the school leader colleagues I have at my school. Um, and if they're, I think that they're an example of what we have out there. There are teachers and school leaders out there that are willing to, to you know, reimagine what schooling needs to be like. And I, I think we're at a pretty exciting point, uh, a turning point for our, our, our education in this country. Gosh, I really appreciate uh, that that high note that that we're ending on. Um, and if you feel good about the future, then then I know I can feel good about the future. So I just want to say thank you so much for joining us today, Luis. And where can we find more from you that we can link in our show notes? Yeah. Uh, yes. Um, I do have a professional Twitter, um, but I actually haven't logged on it <laughs> for a whole while. <laughs> um, and so I think that that is something I need to reinvest in. Um, but you can definitely find me on, on LinkedIn um, under Luis Gallegos, assistant principal, Ochi High School. Uh, that would be one place if uh, any um, you know, other uh, disaster researchers were interested in learning more about the amazing work being done by our educators um, at um, Alliance Ochi. Um, you know, you feel free to reach out to me at lgallegos at laalliance.org. Um, I'm more than happy to connect you directly to any of our teachers, any of our students. Um, I think right now is a prime time to explore what is going on in the ground. And I'm, I, I think my school community is amazing and I would love to connect anyone that's willing to learn from us, um, you know, uh, directly to our students and staff because uh, they have a lot to say about what's been going on. Well, thank you all for being with us today. And before you go, a few quick reminders about how you can stay connected with the podcast. 
You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at DisastersDecon. The podcast is available on all the major platforms. Please download, share, and most importantly, subscribe. And if you haven't already done this, we really appreciate your ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts. This will help us to continue making content for you. You've been listening to Disasters Deconstructed. And don't forget, disasters are not natural. See you next time. You're listening to Darian and myself, Luis Gallegos, on Disasters, Deconstructed Podcast.